Welcome back, everyone, to Just Saying, a podcast about how to be a more intentional communicator. My name is Charlie Thornton, and in this episode, I get to geek out and talk with a real-life scientist about brain stuff. But first, thank you so much for listening. And if you're new, we're super glad you're here. And if you're not new, we're also super glad you're here. And if you could do us a huge favor and take 10 seconds to leave us a killer review on iTunes, it would just make our day. And it would mean that we get to have more conversations like this one, which would be cool. Okay, my guest today is Dr. Hans Breiter. Dr. Breiter is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University. And if that's not enough, he's also the director of laboratory and neuroimaging and genetics at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. So he's a pretty sharp guy. Um, And he's done a lot of research on addiction. And I thought maybe we could talk to him about how we can have a healthier relationship with technology. I learned a lot from our conversation. I hope you will too. Let's listen in. Hans Breiter, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great. It's great to talk with you. At the Brief Lab, we get to opine from a practical perspective on a lot of different issues that relate to how people work and how they focus their attention. And so I'm actually super excited to talk to you because you don't have to opine on this from a practical perspective. You actually understand the chemistry of what's happening in our brains. And so um, I'd, I'd love to just get your opinions on a, on a few things from the scientific perspective. And, and hopefully you can break it down in a way that's simple enough for regular folks like me and, and some of the folks who are listening to take something valuable away from it. So I thought we could start um, on addiction uh, you, you've made some serious contributions to addiction and, and the definition of addiction. Um, so let's just start with that, if you're if you're okay with that. What what is addiction, and, and how should regular people like me and our listeners think about it? Charlie, thank you for the question. It's it's a um, you know anybody who says it's a simple response, a simple kind of a thing to talk about is is uh, uh, kind of uh, not being honest about it. Um, we, you know, the thing about addiction is we can study animals in a certain way that resemble humans in some of their behavior, um, but the the actual construct in humans is much more complex, complicated than what you see in animals. Um, so a lot of times you'll see animal studies where they they say, you know, we we got an animal to self-administer alcohol or heroin or cocaine, and then we did this intervention and found this particular gene is involved, this molecular biology pathway or this circuit and things like this. The problem with that type of approach is it's only looking at one aspect of addiction. Human addiction is actually a complicated issue. So we kind of see these four fundamental features of addiction that really define it. Short-term repetitive reward versus long-term incremental gain. Restricted portfolio of things you like and dislike. And keep in mind, a portfolio preference is both positive and negative preferences, okay? And in that context, there's a restricted range, too, about how you express preference. Three, you don't see the negative consequences of things. And four, um, the, your, your ability to have insight about things gets massively const- also constrained. So those four pieces define addiction. Now, the first one, short-term repetitive reward, we can model with animals quite well. Very difficult to model the other three elements with regard to animal models. So anytime you hear about somebody saying, we've got this really cool breakthrough with addiction, and it's an animal study, eh, scratch your head and say, all right, (laughs) be careful, interesting. We'll see how relevant that is to the more complex issue of what goes on with humans, because we're massively complex. 
the reason I was interested in talking to you about addiction and about attention is um, because of these devices that we have on us all the time. And the term addiction gets thrown around all the time. And the term attention deficit gets thrown around all the time in relation to technology. And I just love your thoughts. I mean, first off, is is that hyperbole to 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 use the term addiction when it comes to screens no. and phones? So elaborate on that, if you would. Not not at all, um, Charlie. It's a great point. And you know, these these phones actually they've been designed um, with stimulus response features in play. So remember, we talked about this issue. You can take a stimulus, get the response. That's talked about in the context of what's called classical conditioning. Pavlov, Cannon, a bunch of scientists used to do these studies where you ring the bell and you take a look at the response, the salivation of the dog. First off, you put the food, they seem to salivate, then you start pairing the ringing of a bell with the presentation of the food, you see they salivate, eventually you take the food away, just present the bell and you see them salivate, okay? Mm-hmm. That's a stimulus followed by a response. But you can go the other way too. You can take a behavior that has a consequence. So you can be key pressing for something it, every time you keep every time you keep press five times, you get like a slug of water and you're thirsty. So you keep press a few more times to get another slug of water, and you'll keep doing that until your thirst is quenched. Okay. Okay. That's that's where behavior leads to a consequence. So you, we call this in general stimulus response, but it has to do with how a stimulus goes to a response or how a behavior slash response leads to a consequence and thus more behavior. You can look at it either end. It's like two sides of the same coin. Got it. In the context of looking at phones, they have been heavily designed so that stimuli can be presented and they have what's called incentive reward value. They draw you in. So you make a response. Stimulus leading to response. They've also thought very carefully about how to bring in reinforcement reward, which is how a behavior has a consequence. So reinforcement reward, other side of the coin. Both aspects of these types of of behaviorist ideas have been heavily ingrained in cell phones, heavily ingrained, and your computer framework, okay? How ads are served, how they send stimulus. Every time you do a search, okay, stimulus response and and response consequence issues are, are at the forefront of what's going on, okay? How you work with a computer and a cell phone has been tailored, that's been measured and tailored back to you very carefully. So these principles are involved. Now keep in mind, when we talk about short-term repetitive reward and addiction, that is stimulus response, behavior consequence type frameworks, okay? So when we get an animal to approach a potential drug reward, okay, that's a stimulus and then their behavior response. When we have them key press to get more drug, that is a behavior and a consequence. So you're sitting there swiping and, 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 and hitting at things, that's behavior leading to a consequence, okay? Both the stimulus response, the behavior consequence frameworks are heavily ingrained in this. They're also the fundamental way by which we get animals to show addictive type behavior. And you can frame the schedule of how much of a behavior leads to a particular consequence on these cell phones so well that you can get people acting on cell phones as if they're addicted to a drug. This is not an accident. The same framework that is used to model what we do in behaviorist animal studies with drug reward or with anything else is also done with cell phones. Now, 
you might ask, is that really an addictive problem? Do, um, well, let's go through this, okay? So you get people spending a lot more time with this short-term repetitive reward on the phone. How many times have you found yourself doom scrolling throughout the day when you kind of instead could be reading something that's important for you? Guilty. Or, no, yeah. Okay. Guilty. Me too. I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I'm a, I may have mentioned this to you before. I'm a songwriter and I thank God that I didn't have a phone that we didn't really have smartphones when I was in high school and college. Cause I don't know if I ever would have written a song because right. writing music requires, it requires quiet. It requires sort of descending into a depth of focus where you can be creative and, and capture it and, and replay yeah. it and be repetitive. And yep. I, I fear for my own kids and their what opportunities are they going to lose to develop those types of skills if there's always a quick hit just to click away. Correct. Correct. I mean, it's a, um, you know, it's a fundamental problem. It also, this whole issue of restricting the range of your behaviors, think about how many things you're not doing because you start doom scrolling. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other piece about that in the context of, uh, of uh, not having a concern for negative consequences, well, that's very clearly going on with a lot of these people. And then lastly, this issue of a lack of insight. If you're not spending time in quiet, if you're not having kind of free range, unfocused attentional time, you're going to lose the capacity to kind of be thinking about others very you know, readily. A lot of what goes on is we unconsciously kind of ramble around in our heads, thinking about stuff, making associations. We need that time. You need that downtime. You need that downtime sitting on your back porch with one beer, sipping that beer slowly, listening to a thunderstorm in the distance. Okay? You need that. Everybody does. And if you can do that, you're going to function better at work the next day. If you're sitting there kind of constantly going on the screen, whether it's a TV, a computer, or a phone, you're not getting that downtime. You're not getting this kind of um, uh, this time where your attention is unfocused, and it's really I, important. I'm I'm so excited just to hear you say that because, um, as you know, we you know the 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 founder of the Brief Lab wrote a book called Brief: mm -hmm. Make a Bigger Impact by Saying Less, and it's all about how to manage people's attention, right, and how to be direct. But then he wrote a second book called Noise: Living and Leading When Nobody Can Focus, and it's. And it, it's because so many people that we worked with kind of brought this issue to us, which is, yeah, it's great that you're teaching me how to communicate, but I, I don't even have the space to think clearly, mm -hmm. let alone communicate clearly. And we started to realize that that's a, a big missing ingredient. So the fact that you just sort of naturally went there is, is cool to me. One of the things I've always wondered is what's actually happening when you're sitting there having that beer, listening to that thunderstorm? Like what's happening in our brain that makes it able to focus better 12 hours later after we've gotten some sleep? This is a great, great question. Um, you know, the work with regard to um, mindfulness and quiet is just beginning. There's some really cool imaging that's going on with Sarah Lazar and a bunch of others at Mass General. She's a friend of mine. I, I love the work she does. Um, and a number of others are kind of going after this issue. Um, there's been a lot of focus kind of on how, you know, it, it, it plays into, it changes attention, it changes the capacity for working memory. Um, some people have talked about this in the context of how something called the default mode network, which is kind of a system that is 
looking at connecting itself across various aspects of the brain gets turned on when you're not doing something. So if you're not sitting there doing a task on your phone, if you're not sitting there in a conversation, you're just kind of sitting there quietly, the default mode turns on. And the more tightly it's connected across the brain with various regions, the better you tend to do with cognitive tasks later, okay? Now, we don't understand why. We don't know what this really means. In fact, um, this, is all, this is all kind of, a, an emerge, kind of an emerging domain within neuroscience. Um, I was involved in some of the earliest studies with functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, was on the front page, for instance, of the Wall Street Journal in 1992. People thought it was, they described what we were doing as like putting a person into this massive pencil sharpener. That's how they described an MRI. This tube, you put them in there and they disappeared. <laughs> we're, we're scanning the mind and whittling Sounds really freaky. It. <laughs> it was kind of freaky. That was, it was 1992. I, 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 you know, and, um, we were scanning. We, I had to develop with a team at Mass General the first kind of analysis platform. There was a big team of people working together to kind of understand how to analyze this material and make a movie of the mind. See the mind thinking. See the mind feeling, see the mind kind of making decisions and things like this. It was a very complicated process, but we were very focused on how to integrate a behavior, a task you're doing with the person in the magnet while they're scanning the brain, activating to that task. Around 1995, as we were kind of getting things together and the first papers are about to be published in 96, 97, showing that we could see a psychiatric illness, showing that we could see deep emotional regions of the brain like the amygdala turn on to fearful stimuli and things like this. Um, localizing the reward circuit, like being able to give cocaine to cocaine dependent people and see the reward system turn on. It took another four years before we could show the same system turned on with non-addicts doing a game of chance with money. So you and I doing a game of chance with money, we look the same as somebody who's got a co who's a cocaine act about to get a cocaine hit. Mm. And so we started seeing this common system, but it took, we were always using a task with the MRI. As we were starting to do this stuff, some folks were starting to say, what are all those fluctuations going on in the MRI signal mean anyway? Why is it always kind of oscillating? And do those oscillations connect various regions? Is there a similar pattern from one region to another region? I looked at it as purely noise. I was clueless about this. I kind of said, this is something we have to figure out how to whiten out so we can kind of do better you know, associations between um, you know, tasks and what various parts of the brain are doing with those tasks. Okay. But then others kind of said, you know, maybe there's something going on at rest. And so a lot of us started discussing it, but it wasn't not until about another 10 years, mid 2000s, that people actually started looking at how various parts of the brain oscillate together when you're not doing a task. And that's actually very characteristic. There are differences with psychiatric illness, like with PTSD or with depression and things like that, with this resting state fMRI signal, okay? So you don't have to be doing a task. You can be just at rest. And we see that this resting state piece has very interesting relationships with brain structure, and with regard to behavior. So right now we're working on some, a study where we took a bunch of, you know, really good football players. I mean, well, they're from Penn State, so who knows how good they are, right? But, you know, it's a nationally contending football team. And uh, don't want to get down this road. Yeah, I, know. So, it's, so I, I went to Northwestern, so it's like, all right, I, they, 
they've beaten us pretty good. So I'll leave it at yeah. that. What can you do, right? Yeah. What can you do? Um, but but um, I run the consortium for uh, concussion neuroscience with Sam Slobanoff from, uh, from Penn State. And so we study a lot of Penn State football players. And we got this really cool observation where you think about motor control, like how well does somebody change, accurately change their balance or how quickly they can change that balance, okay? And then, or how well they can use this for spatial navigation. These are core problems that happen with concussion and head impacts, repetitive impacts and, uh, cause a problem. A lot of times you'll see somebody get a big hit on the field. The first thing you notice is they're a little bit stumbling, they're a little un uncoordinated, okay? This system gets hit very quickly. We noticed that we actually could connect it to a, a structural measure in the brain to resting state. So just the oscillations in the brain, in the parts of the brain that are involved with sensor, sensing and, and, and motor control, we could see that the, 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 um, the speed at which you corrected your balance, the, the, the circuitry connecting those brain regions and their resting state fluctuations were connected closely together in a statistically significant way, meaning these three systems were kind of working together. And the importance about this is it's showing that just the resting state piece is fundamental. The behavior feeds back on this resting state function. There's nothing going on in the brain during resting state. It's just how it coordinates across various parts of the brain. Is, is okay. that why, you know, a lot of people will report that they have great ideas in the shower? It's a great question. Creativity, the ability to have aha moments is very interesting and different in and of itself. Um, you're getting at this issue of problem solving and how we solve problems. There's kind of three fundamental ways we solve problems. Most of them are unconscious. So you can arrange the problem try to rearrange it. You can look for structure within it, okay? So kind of like, is there a pattern that, we, that falls out of it? Uh, the famous example is the guy who was kind of looking at a fire as a chemist and trying to understand how a bunch of carbon atoms could be linked together. And he came up with the idea of a benzene ring, six carbons together in a ring. He was seeing a snake eating its tail in the fire. He had this image of a snake eating a tail. And he realized that's how the carbon atoms were linked together. Okay, that was an aha moment, all yeah. right? That's one way that we do problem solving. And a lot of times you can't like say, oh, I, I, I saw the structure in the problem this way. Usually you're thinking about something and the structure emerges out of it and you say, that's the solution. And okay? you know when it happens. Like uh, when you get a riddle, you're sort of banging your head against the wall and all of a sudden you back up and you're like, oh, I got it. Exactly Now right. I get it. Okay. Exactly right. So that's, that is kind of a looking for structure in something. And usually structure comes out of the unconscious. You don't see it immediately. So it happens in the shower and things like this. There's also a third way of doing problem solving, which is kind of an algorithmic framework, like you, um, how you deal with that game, hobbits and orcs. How do you kind of get them across, you know, there are, there's kind of, or how you do the tower of Hanoi in, in terms of moving rings off of one, one tower to another tower. Okay. Um, these are kind of, uh, for, you know, there is an algorithmic framework by which you can kind of try to solve a problem. Um, so those three pieces are very much, you know, how we go about any type of problem. But defining a structure is absolutely this aha moment and depends on having lots of quiet. 
It doesn't happen if you structure your day. So a lot, you know, I hear about these guys like uh, Elon Musk, and I don't want to show, throw aspersions at him, but he talks about, you know, structuring his schedule every five minutes. He's not going to have a lot of aha moments. Sorry, that just, that is kind of the best way to make sure you don't have an aha moment, right? You're trying to solve something to find the structure, emerge out of it. Give yourself some free time to solve it, okay? Darwin, Einstein, they all did this. Darwin used to take lots of walks. Einstein played the violin, did stuff that was unrelated to kind of the problem they're trying to solve. And they often would find that um, they could solve a problem. My own dad was a scientist. He was kind of the father of the hydrogen fuel cell. He often found that he could not solve things late at night, no matter how much wine he drank. So he would sit down, I'm going to bed, okay? And he would go to bed, I'm thinking, I'm gonna think about this problem. It would take one, two, sometimes seven nights. But if he let himself sleep on it, gave him time away from the problem, gardening, whatever, you know, doing carpentry, he would solve that problem. And that's for most people, this issue of taking time away to try to solve things. We often talk about this. You have a fight with your spouse. You have a fight with your best friend. You need to go and think about it, but you're not really thinking about it. You're taking a moment to walk, to kind of compose yourself. You need to do a lot of that, and then kind of the solution comes to you. But without quiet, we never find solutions. This is, this is fascinating, and I could keep talking to you on and on and on, but you're obviously an extremely busy man. I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, how you're, much you're busy too. Don't, don't come on. You're busy too, man. Well, I don't know. I look at the stuff you're doing. I'm like, I don't want to keep him too long. Cause he's got like lives to save and stuff. So how so, much you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm just a scientist, Charlie. I'm just trying to put this stuff together. And if, and if we can kind of get this material out there and, and help others to think about this stuff and raise questions, some of the best questions come from people here us talking about this stuff and then coming yeah. back saying, how about such and such? And a scientist look at each other kind of saying, that's a great question. Why didn't we think about that? There we go. Well, I want to get to that in a second on some work that you're doing, but real quick first, how much quiet time do we need? Not sure. Not certain. Um, You know, I, you know, it varies. Um, There, there's a kind of a famous comment and, you know, that's attributed to the Dalai Lama. It's been variously attributed to other people. Um, um, Gandhi is supposedly to, is supposed to have said this. But something along the lines that um, you, know, you, you do your 15 minutes of, of quiet time in the morning, whether it's prayer or whether it's meditation. Um, but when you've got a serious day that's, that's going to be very difficult with a lot of stress, you double it. Okay. So instead of 15 minutes, you double it and make it 30 minutes. Okay. Yep. Um, there are people who tell you, know, that I've so you know, the, the Dalai Lama is reported to have said, you know, I do 15 to 30 minutes a morning, but if it's a really stressful day, it's an hour, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've but, heard a very similar thing attributed to, to John Henry Newman. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I did. Yeah. A lot of people kind of say these things. I, I think about them, the, the writer Hariri, um, um, he wrote the book Sapiens and things, you know, a number of other books. Um, he's reported to kind of to meditate two hours a day. Now that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But it, he, he makes a point with that quiet time. It's not spent writing. The writing goes amazingly well for the rest of the day, two, three hour blocks. And he gets huge amounts of done. Yeah. I so there's something that. to this issue. You know, you talk about that with any, any, you know, surgeons before they get into an operation, they're not sitting or rushing around. They take a moment to just sit and think about it carefully, quietly away from everybody. Then they go into it. 
And you always got to do that. Yeah. Um, okay. So we don't have a, a, a direct answer, but the, the busier you are, maybe the more quiet time you, you would benefit from. And, and keep in mind that sounds con- uh, kind of um, contradictory because you got more busy stuff to be dealing with. You need to be putting a lot of time into it, but you'll be more effective if you take more time yeah. to also give quiet beforehand. I, I don't want to wrap up before we talk a little bit about some of the really cool work that you're doing around the diagnosing of, of depression for people with, with, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it. I want you to say it, but, but brain injuries, right? So tell me a little bit about what you're doing there. So, um, Charlie, I kind of, uh, you know, I do this mathematical psychology and, and brain imaging stuff. And more recently we've started bringing in, um, molecular biology. So looking at kind of inflammatory microRNAs and inflammatory, you know, uh, uh, messengers, all types of cool stuff, linking it to the imaging, linking it to the behavior. I do a lot of stuff with kind of the mathematics of behavior and trying to model behavior. Turns out that this modeling of behavior with uh, some, it's some wild mathematics, um, kind of like whole sets of equations, doing all types of weird things, what we call function spaces. Turns out that this stuff is directly connected to artificial intelligence. And what we're doing, you can actually take the mathematics of behavior and, and extract much better features that the, the deep learning algorithms and the classification algorithms can then use to make better predictions. And we can now predict depression with just a short three-minute picture rating task. I don't have to ask you about what you like, how your day's been, are you feeling sad? Um, I don't want to know if you're right or left-handed, if you're male, female, I don't need to know any of that. I can take just a bunch of ratings, how much you dislike or like a set of pictures. In a sense, look at how you swim through emotion. Look at the wake, like a swimmer leaves in the water and every swimmer is different, okay? That's actually a well-known phenomenon. You can characterize a swimmer by the wake they leave in the water. Well, we can characterize people by how the, the, the kind of the patterns and how they swim through emotions, so to speak. And it's very predictive of depression, anxiety, things like this. And we've been able to achieve a level of 77% accuracy, which is far better than any other system. Doesn't take a year of, of social media posts, doesn't take all their medical records, um, doesn't have to be a wearable that you have on your wrist, you know, or, or your watch. Don't need any of that three minutes. We could do it once, do it another time, do it another time. Um, it, it goes somewhere between 77% and up to 86% accuracy. It's far better than anything else. Um, my and, and goal this, right now, sorry. Sorry. And, and this allows you to, to, to see if depression is going to be an issue in the future as well. Like if, even if they're not experiencing yeah. it right now, are they right moving now? forward depression right now or are they depressed or are they out of depression? So we can look at the range of it. Mm. And what's cool about it is you can see it in real time. And so um, where I'm right now rushing to try to pull something together, I would love to have this out there in the military for every, every active duty person, everybody who's uh, on the re- in the reserves, pre post uh, uh, deployment, having them be able to do something simple. And we all know how hard it is to answer those 200 questions you got to answer pre deployment and after deployment. And a lot of times, you know, you kind of like, dang, this is taking a long time. Okay. Imagine if you could do a very simple little task, you know, pictures that are actually kind of cool to look at, and we get all this information, and I don't need to know anything more about you. 
And then we can kind of see, you know, if you're at risk for depression right then and there. I want to get this out there to the military, given the suicide risk, the overdose risk, all that type of stuff. Um, people in the military are risking their lives for everybody else and um, sitting with the trauma that they experience. Um, the, the most, the, the, we need to get kind of get simpler mental health tools to people. Um, depression, all suicide is based on depression. You don't commit suicide or try suicide if you haven't had some type of depression. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to get better tools to assess this, assess it in real time, and have it be non-judgmental. You know what I mean? Simple, non-judgmental, simple little flag, quick assessment, um, and try to reduce the number of losses we get, right? And also right. losses for people when they leave the service. My God, think about all the vets out there. It's hard to get out of the military service and suddenly deal with civilians. I see this as a physician, okay? When I go from an intense session in the hospital, I come back up out of the, out of the hospital. I, I don't understand the real world. Hmm. I completely don't get it. It takes a while to transition back into being a real person. You know, your kids ask you, how, what were things like? How do you describe people dying to other people? How do you describe really bad illness? How do you describe all the stuff you see? It's really hard to do that. And the risks for people who are in the medical profession, in the military, are tremendous. They're seeing stuff that nobody else sees. So I, what I, I want to do is I want to build the system out. I can do it in four months. We've already got proof of concept. We're working on um, a, a kind of putting a bunch of peer-reviewed papers out there. Four months, I will have a system. I just need to get to the right people in the military to get it deployed. All right. Well, you keep doing what you're doing. We'll do everything we can to get you connected to the right people. Uh, Hans Breiter, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today about addiction and technology, about attention, about uh, the importance of quiet, and then sharing some of this amazing work you're doing. It's just an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, to you and your crew, and uh, look forward to hearing about any questions they might have or, or thoughts they might throw back. I very much appreciate it. 